All right. We are now joined by Christine Badaraco. Christine, are you with us? Yes. We're so glad you could join us. Where, where are you located, by the way? I am in Washington, D.C. Oh, okay. Well, I just want to introduce you based on your work on the Farm Bill Citizen's Guide. Christina is a, a co-author with Daniel Imhoff of this book. I think when people think about the Farm Bill, their eyes glaze over because it is this sort of impenetrable monstrous black box which uh, has so many moving parts in it and people just can't cope with it. So tell us what is the Farm Bill and uh, we'll go on after that to ask why it's so important to not just big farmers, giant agribusiness farms, but why is it is it important to all citizens in our, uh, our country? Absolutely. So the Farm Bill um, is uh, not too far away at this point, I guess, from its um, 100th birthday. So the first Farm Bill was created actually back in 1933 um, as part of the New Deal coming out of the Great Depression, um, originally developed as, uh, I think, primarily a means to address issues of overproduction of some of our um, top commodity crops and the need to increase prices so that farms could make more money and deal with a lot of the negative effects of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl, so on and so forth. And um, we passed the Farm Bill, uh, a new Farm Bill, essentially every five years in the United States. Um, It hasn't always come out to about five years. Um, The last two that were signed were six years apart, 2014 and 2018, but in theory should be every five years. Um, And there's been a lot of change over time. So from the original farm bill that was passed, the Agricultural Adjustment Act in 1933, up until the last one we signed in 2018, um, there have been multiple changes in terms of what we are spending our money on and how we provide support to farmers, um, how funding is kind of allocated across the um, different uh, sort of subject areas. And I'll talk in a minute about what the different those areas are. But I wanted to point out there's been a lot of change over time. Um, and I think I think that's a good thing. And hopefully our call will resolve today thinking about even more changes that are needed going forward. To provide a little bit more context as well in terms of what the Farm Bill covers, the Farm Bill is our largest piece of agricultural legislation in the U.S., by the way. So there are 12 titles. A title is kind of like um, a category or a section of the Farm Bill. And four of them stand out as really being the biggest, um, but the I, biggest in terms of um, spending, the amount of dollars spending on them. And so those include uh, nutrition assistance, um, which is by far the biggest, crop insurance, um, commodity support, and then conservation programs. Uh, and then beyond those top four programs, there are another eight titles spanning from things like support for research, forestry, energy, on-farm energy production, et cetera. And let's see, what else can I say about it? Um, would you like me to dive a little bit more into those titles, or do you have more specific questions? First question is, for me, for me this is Richard. You said, that, you know, this bill emerged or, or was first passed during the Great Depression, 1933. It might strike some people as odd that in this time of relative prosperity that we still need a farm bill. So why does the government have to be involved in, I guess, 
funding and monitoring the production of food in our country? That is a great question. And, you know, somebody actually asked me something kind of similar recently. I was at just, I guess, kind of like a friend's dinner, and we ended up talking about the farm bill a little bit. And um, we were talking about how so much of the funding that supports crops grown in the U.S. goes toward our really top commodities that are, you know, not great for the environment, not good for human health. And again, we can talk about that more, but uh, we were talking about instead those subsidies would be much better off directed toward supporting healthier food production. And, and then somebody said, well, do we really need subsidies at all? Like what, what if we just did, what would happen if we did away with these subsidies? And so that uh, kind of at least part of your question there. So I think it's, it would be very interesting to think about what would happen if we just didn't pass another farm bill um, coming up next year in 2023. What would happen, especially coming out of the, the COVID pandemic and all the other negative effects we're seeing in the food system right now, whether it be the crisis in Ukraine, um, our problematic um, kind of uh, weather-related events throughout the U.S., unprecedented flooding and, and storms and other things like that. So I think a, ma- a big reason um, for having a farm bill and, and the way we've been spending more and more of the money to support crops in recent years is through crop insurance programs that help to compensate farmers for losses and make sure that they're able to make enough money. Unfortunately, given where we are, the, the state of our food and farming system in the U.S., farmers aren't, across the board, this is a little bit of a generalization, but farmers aren't really able to make a living based off of growing crops. We see that they are increasing relying on off-farm income and sometimes even treating farming as kind of a hobby. Um, but even more so, they rely on government subsidies to make a living wage, or, or many would argue not even a living wage. So, you know, not to say going back 80 years or so, we couldn't have come up with a better system. I think we certainly could have. But given where we are today, I can't imagine our farming community in the United States being able to support food for our food system as it is now to meet demand in the United States and around the world um, without these programs. And, you know, there are also it's not just commodity support from the farm bill and, and the crop insurance. We also have a lot of programs. Sometimes we might consider them sort of small but mighty programs, hopefully growing over time, that are supporting farmers to engage more in conservation programs and provide healthier food, support more local farmers, even more in the last couple of, or the last farm bill, I guess, um, beginning disadvantaged farmers. We have a huge problem right now in the U.S. We have a shortage of farmers. So we actually need to um, to kind of provide support for um, equity in, in our agricultural system, in a sense. We need to get more people into farming to make sure we have enough people producing food to feed Americans going forward. So I think for, for a lot of different issues, both driven by what the farm bill has looked like in the past, but also issues related to disastrous weather events and kind of you know, trends in the economy and consumer demand, we, we need kind of support for trying to nudge production and consumption and environmental protection in the right direction through the Farm Bill. We're speaking with Christina Badaraco, who is a co-author of a very heavy 
<laughs> I should say book. I'm holding it in my hand right now. It's 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 a it's an extremely detailed analysis of the of the book. It's called The Farm Bill: A Citizen's Guide. I'm looking at a, at the book right now, and there's a quote here that I want to read. It says, "The next farm bill will probably continue to prop up the industrial agriculture complex." with tens of billions of taxpayer dollars, as it has done for decades. You know, you've been using the word farms and farming, and there's a whole pantheon of, of different types of farms, you know, and the ones mm. I think that our listeners and in our community are concerned with are small farms. And mm-hmm. so I think there's a, an issue that I believe, and you know, through my uh, limited understanding of the farm bill, that it doesn't really have enough support for small farms, and also for the um, support of organic farming and regenerative agriculture. Am I right there? And uh, what is your view on that? Yes, I would certainly agree with that. So the vast, vast majority of funding uh, in the Farm Bill, both for crop insurance and other commodity support, um, definitely goes toward um, massive monocultures. Think of things like corn and soybeans and wheat, um, which um, are, are not necessarily a lot of what these sort of smaller organic farms you're talking about are growing, and also not the majority of what should be filling our plates. Um, you know, I'm not sure if you saw in my bio, I'm also a registered dietitian. So I'm really passionate uh-huh. about nutrition and the kind of intersection between human health, environmental health through our food system. Um, and so I, there's a really interesting graphic. I, I believe it's in our book and I've seen um, some groups show it before that kind of contrast what the USDA my plate figure looks like. If you've ever seen that before, it's kind of like, Quarter of your plate should be fruit, quarter should be vegetables, quarter should be some type of protein, um, and then grains, ideally whole grains. But then when you contrast that with essentially a pie chart of where the dollars are going through our subsidies, through the farm bill, and I'm using subsidies loosely, that includes kind of the commodity supports as well as crop insurance, um, it's overwhelmingly going toward um, grains, oils and then a fair bit for cotton. And the fruits and vegetables, uh, less than half a percent. So it's supposed to be 50% of our plate, less than half a percent. And you're, you even went a step further and said organic agriculture. So, you know, that would just be a tiny sliver of the half percent. So, yes, I would, I would absolutely agree that we are way, way off base at this point in time with where those dollars are going. Um, now, I will say there are some areas of promise. I mentioned before there are some smaller programs in the Farm Bill that are providing financial support, technical support, um, training, et cetera, to uh, help with kind of the training of new farmers and small family farms. And I think, um, you know, the organic community is also really involved in trying to work on um, things like standards for organic and labeling and um, funding through the Farm Bill to help with cost sharing to become certified organic. So I think there's kind of some slow incremental progress moving that way, but but given where we are now, I think we still have a long, long, long way to go to be able to make sure that the way we should be eating and the types of foods we should be growing are actually aligned with the way we're spending money through the Farm Bill. So why is it that the government 
throw so much money at uh, industrial agriculture in the production of corn and soybeans and grains that it's really overproduction it, it, to my mm-hmm. in my mm-hmm. concept why is that yeah. is that because the the power of the industrial agriculture sector uh, lobbies and heavily influences what the government does with its funding yeah i i agree with that i think that's a uh, a major consideration so um, lobbying from major groups. Um, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't call any out by name for the sake of this phone call, but um, certainly large agricultural organizations lobbying to maintain the status quo, in a sense. Um, and then the smaller organic farms, the small family farms, the growers of those fruits and vegetables and nuts and legumes, they just don't have nearly the influence on Capitol Hill. They don't have nearly the amount of money to be able to influence what is going on in, in Congress. Um, so I, I, I do think that that's really a major part of it. You know, we probably won't dive into this too much in our call today, but looking at kind of the, the different difference in politics across different parts of the U.S. and looking at which sides of Congress uh, have interests in kind of either direction when it comes time to decide where funding is going through the Farm Bill. So there, there are certainly other implications about understanding the constituencies um, among the folks in Congress who are making these decisions. But I, I do think lobbying is, is a major consideration. And then maybe one other thing that's one other aspect that's not quite so political, I brought up a few minutes ago, is driven largely by consumer demand. And, and I realize um, a lot of our demand is driven by what's available, but the way Americans are eating right now is largely um, reliant upon processed corn and soy and some of these other commodities. I mean, we if you look at the list of ingredients and foods we're getting in the grocery store, often long lists on packages, things we can't even identify. If you read into where those actually come from, so often it's corn or soy. So, you know, if we Americans didn't buy all of those foods, there wouldn't be as much demand for them. So that's another another aspect to it. Steve, uh, do do you have any anything here you'd like to uh, pursue with uh, Christina? Yes, yes, absolutely, and, and great to be with you, Christina. Um, you know, you mentioned the consumer demand, and I think, uh, you know, as an organic grower and, and the organic groups, you know, that we have in Connecticut, like Connecticut NOFA and, and uh, organic uh, consumer groups throughout the country, we note the growth of organics as being one of the sort of larger growth sectors in the, in the mm-hmm. food and ag world. Uh, and I think it's interesting that that hasn't really translated in the, in the dollars that we've seen from the farm bill. And so I'm curious, if you see an opportunity for change, I, I think, you know, at least locally, there's been some acknowledgement that that is a big, important growth sector. I'm wondering if you're seeing that uh, in on the sort of the nationwide level and if we can expect to see that reflected in the upcoming Farm Bill. And then also just, uh, you know, if you want to further on anything that you're excited about or any like exciting opportunities that you think are possible in this next uh, round for the Farm Bill, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, to your first question, um, I was actually just doing some research a couple weeks ago, not directly related to the Farm Bill, but another article that I've been writing about um, kind of comparing organic versus conventional agriculture targeted at kind of a lay audience and reading some of those statistics about 
the huge, huge amount of growth in the organic industry, which is, is great. I think that's, that's wonderful. And a lot of that, as to your point, is, is not driven by government subsidies. It's consumer demand. So that's wonderful. But I, I also then agree with your point that we, we're not really seeing a much shift in the way Farm Bill is funding these different forms of agriculture thus far, at least as of, um, you know, the 2018 Farm Bill. I think, I, I'm not sure I can say conclusively to answer your second question, kind of what what are we seeing for 2023? I'm not sure I can say conclusively or I could guarantee that we're going to see shift toward more funding toward organic. I know there are some groups, even in the next month or so, um, or get national organic groups meeting to kind of strategize and work work on um, you know the, the information and and all they're going to try to get into the hands of Congress as they're making decisions for next year. So um, I'm I'm hopeful that there will be at least a small amount of progress. I, I'm not seeing, not envisioning that the farm bill will be totally overhauled so that we see you know 95% of our subsidies going toward organic. I, that's hmm. not going to happen next year. But I wouldn't be surprised to see a little bit of uh, a little bit of growth. You know, I I would love to say that part of that might also be driven by not not just kind of that growth in consumer demand, but all of these kind of converging crises that we've seen in food systems in the last two three years, kind of around the pandemic, and again, kind of these record floods and other crises that we have and continued shortage of farmers and just kind of all the issues we have around the U.S. right now. And and I do know we have some folks, an increasing number of um, folks in Congress. Um, you know, Shelley Pingree has always been a wonderful advocate, but others as well, um, Cory Booker and others who are interested in a healthier, more sustainable, more just food and farming system. And that extends beyond just support for organic, but I think organic is a part of that. Shelly Pingree herself is an organic farmer. And I'm not even from Maine, by the way, but she's just one I I know a bit more about. So I I do think there are a few folks in Congress who are going to push for that. Um, So I'm I'm, um, hopeful for, for some progress there, I'd say. Thank you so much. I want to thank Christine Badaracco for joining us, Steve Murrow from Masaro Farm. All right, we are going to try to bring Vincent K. into this conversation. Vincent K., the honeybee man with the honeybee update. Vincent, are you with us? Great to be back again. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, um, I just do you guys for... have any questions? I can, you know me. I can, I'm a bee nerd, and I can go on and on about bees. Right. Um, but if you have any particular questions right off the bat, um, we can sort of um, address those. But I will say that right now there's so much going on as far as uh, spring, and it's coming, and it's coming whether you like it or not. You go out into the woods and, or into the marshes, and the bird life is amazing. And yeah. all of the all the uh, pussy willows and skunk cabbage and all of the birch and maples are in bloom. Certainly, um, the, the south facing or uh, the the heads of the trees that are facing the sun are all in bloom. And as as usual for Connecticut and New England, it's a little too cool for the honeybees to venture out and get all that nectar. So that's part of the uh, the beauty and also the curse 
of uh, where we live, but it's um, there's a lot going on. Um, the honeybees right now, uh, and I should say that um, if you're a beekeeper and your bees are still alive, um, count your blessings and be grateful because you've done a great job. And, um, and, and don't give up now, though, because uh, April is the cruelest month in many ways uh, because uh, that honeybee nest uh, where the queen is now laying eggs has to be kept at 95 degrees. And that is, is something that just people keep scratching their heads and say, are you really serious? And I say, yeah, it's just like birds sitting on eggs. There's an enormous amount of heat um, that's generated. And uh, the cluster of bees uh, provide that by consuming food. And they surround those eggs and they keep them warm. And just like birds will, uh, the bees do the same thing. And it's, um, it's quite amazing, but they do have to have enough food. So if they're getting a little close to being out of food, and a beekeeper will know because they can, on a nice sunny day, get in there and kind of take a look. Um, until the weather really breaks, which it probably won't until May, um, you really need to either feed them some kind of fondant, which is a crystallized you know, powdered sugar candy, or some kind of liquid feed, um, sugar syrup, uh, a simple syrup uh, put into a can that kind of drips slowly um, into the hive. And the, the bees will actually pull it down like a hamster feeder. It'll drip and they'll also work on it and um, get enough energy to not only sustain themselves, but to, to, um, to have enough to uh, generate the heat that's needed. So it's kind of critical that beekeepers are on call, so to speak, to do this. And, uh, but you'll notice that the cluster will be getting bigger and uh, right now, it's a numbers game for us. Um, Swords in the Plowshares Honey uh, has the uh, responsibility uh, to, we've taken on the responsibility, I should say, to uh, uh, provide pollination for a number of farms, commercial farms. And so we have to have enough bees going into some of these big orchards, uh, mostly for pears and apples, to some extent peaches, but not really, but certainly pears and apples. And um and then it goes from there into berries and other um, uh, crop crop uh, blooms, but uh, we've got to have enough bees per acre to uh, to provide that pollination. So um, we have lost some bees um, during the winter. That always happens. It seems to be a part of uh, beekeeping, even if you're a good beekeeper these days. So you have to have a source to replenish those hives here in the Northeast, and uh, we do. We have a broker, just like uh, a sock broker. We have a bee broker, and uh, that broker provides us with um, the necessary contacts and even purchases of packages of honeybees. And we always um, buy packages, um, usually from a climate somewhere else in the country where it's warmer, maybe a month in or even two months ahead of us agriculturally, and that never really gets cold um, below freezing. So this year, I think some of the packages that we're purchasing are coming from California. And uh, those will be shipped um, across the country. And we then take the packages, which usually consist of uh, three or four pounds of bees, a big cluster of, of just solid bees in a cage. And then inside that cage is another cage with a queen bee. And uh, she's ready to go. She's already been mated and, and proven that she can lay eggs. And you purchase this as a, as a unit. And then as soon as you get it, you put it into a hive and uh, hopefully withdrawn comb already. That gives them a huge start on the season. And the queen will uh, pop out of her cage because part of the cage is made of candy. And as soon as you uncork it, 
um, the other bees have access to eating away at that candy, and it takes maybe a day or so, and, and she's then free from her cage to roam around and start laying eggs and begin the whole process of, um, of uh, laying eggs and increasing the population so that you can get a honey crop, um, but also provide pollination. So we tend to um, make up some of our losses this way, and also um, we've also got queens, uh, queen bees that are that are uh, artificially inseminated uh, from the West Coast or uh, some area where it's it's a lot warmer, and uh, we've ordered those queens and we make up what's called nucleus colonies, and we go in and graft some of the bees that um, have survived our winters. Uh, we graft some of those hives and provide new queen bees to increase our numbers uh, and make up the losses from winter. In doing this, we come up with a number of hives that are strong and will provide a honey crop, but also pollination services to uh, local agriculture. Hey, Vincent, I have a question about uh, the actual end product of of all this, the honey that you harvest. There's so many different kinds of honey, and one of the things that differs is the uh, thickness. Like some, some honeys are almost like honey butter. It's, it's almost like they're very thick. I, I think swords into plowshares honey tends to be much more liquid. And I'm wondering, wondering. what what is the reason for that? Like well, what what's the uh, cause yeah. of the, that kind of thing? Great question. Um, some of the honey, um, we, we monitor all the honey that we spin out of the combs every every summer, and then we put it into storage. But one of the devices that we use to monitor the moisture content of honey is a refractometer. And what that instrument does, it's like a microscope, but what we do is put a drop of honey in it, and the instrument measures um, the moisture content in that honey by refracting light through the water molecules. And then it reads out a digital uh, uh, readout, which tells us, you know, it's, 15% 15% moisture, 18% moisture, et cetera. But it, um, the USDA standard, I believe, is 18.6 um, percentage moisture is allowable in honey. Ours usually comes in um, certainly on the liquid level, but certainly usually between 15 and 17% moisture. So we're happy with that. Um, what makes it sometimes thicker is the granulation process. All honey, and I think we've talked about this on the air um, previous to this, but all honey will eventually turn back into a solid. A lot of it does uh, happen because of granulation. A honey will become as you know, like a thick buttery paste. Yeah, and and that that is basically um, clover honey um, or something similar, which has been left to granulate. Um, and all honey will eventually granulate. Uh, most honey in Europe is sold as granulated honey, and so the liquid. Um, part of, of selling honey is, is great, but um, when it granulates, um, it, it, it basically, you, you can't sell it. It's, it's one of those things, and I don't know why, because I love granulated honey, but it just, uh, it won't sell. So, what, why, um, what do you mean it won't sell? Uh, the stores, I mean, the people just want liquid honey here in the United States, so it's, it's part of marketing. We, we tend to only harvest um, honey from about the end of May, through, we don't start harvesting honey actually until um, July 4th weekend or so. And that way we're guaranteed um, a certain floral source, which is more stable and less prone to granulation. Mm. Um, the early spring honeys do in fact granulate, um, 
And so we don't even put the honey boxes on our bees until they come back from pollinating the orchards. There's also, you know, we also want to make sure that um, a lot of the exposure to uh, pesticides and a lot of the chemicals in, in the uh, commercial farms are not uh, present in the honey. So we make sure that we only produce um, honey after the bees have come back from uh, the dance, as we call it, the, uh, the pollination of uh, commercial crops. Fantastic. Great, great report, Vincent. We thank you so much. Oh, thank you. For the- it's Vincent Kay of uh, Swords into Plowshares Honey. Oh.